Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. Today I'm talking to David Westgate, the bipolar businessman. Um, David has worked in advertising for 35 years as a writer and strategic thinker, and he's held senior positions in international agencies, run his own, worked with clients such as Subaru, Kellogg's, BMW, Johnny Walker, very nice, um, and Combank all while suffering from bipolar with disorder, or should I say all while living with bipolar disorder? However you want. (laughs) I'm not a a pedantic for uh, politically correctness, but however you want to do it. A bit of both, some suffering and some living with. Yes, yeah, yeah. And David also works as a keynote speaker and mental health facilitator for the Back Dog Institute and served on their lived experience advisory panel. So welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations, David. Thank you, Tina. Okay, so our focus on the podcast is around careers and workplaces. So let's go back to when you were at school, did you know what you wanted to do? Um, not really. I thought my, my wife uh, always said, I thought you were going to be a lawyer. That's why I married you. But I was, I was, I, I was always very good with English and I was always uh, a good writer. Um, and so I thought I would sort of land up somewhere like that, like journalism. I mean, my real dream job would have been to be just an author, you know, John Grisham would sit there. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really know that I was going to land in advertising. I didn't had, hadn't conceived of that at the time. So it kind of evolved, did it? I mean, that's often the way with our careers. We kind of stumble into things and then think, oh, this is a good thing, I'll, I'll pursue it. That was precisely it. I was the classic kid that's still at the age of about 25, was driving taxis, working as a labourer, doing all those sort of things, and then I did an advertising course. and. There's an old joke, they say that advertising is the career for people that don't know what they want to do and can't do anything else. And, and that's pretty much the way it worked for me, yes. Right, okay, so that's interesting. So when, when you were studying at school, did you have, can you recall symptoms of, of your mental illness that were emerging then? No, I don't, the, I honestly don't think so. Um, I really do think it was probably into my early to mid-twenties that I first noticed signs. Okay. And what kind of things were you noticing? Um, Very black moods. Mm -hmm. Very black moods. Um, By my aunt, who was very empathetic um, and sort of picked these sort of things, she recommended actually, and I think when I was about 28, that I should go and see a psychiatrist, which I did at the time. Um, but I was so disappointed and disenchanted with the episode and he, he seemed so patronising to me that I thought, oh, look, I, I can, being a silly, arrogant young man, I thought, oh, I can do better this than this myself and I'll take care of my own mental health. But I only really had... Just a sign that I was uh, had some very black moods from time to time. Yeah, and so 
that 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 first uh, contact that we have with services can really set the the trajectory of our journey. Um, and so, when you first have contact with someone or, or service providers that are um, not good, that uh, you, you could have never gone back or never never received the care you need. Well, and 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 look, and the one thing I would say. Um, is for anybody listening today, if you have that sort of experience, the dumb thing I did was I didn't go back for another 25 years. 25 years? Yeah. And honestly, what I should have done, you know, I mean, it's hindsight's wonderful, but uh, a week after that, I should have gone and gone, well, he's not the person for me and I'll find somebody better. Somebody better suited to me that I like and I... And instead, I just went, no. And so I completely and utterly ruled that whole avenue out, which was madness. It really, pardon the expression, but it was a crazy way to think about it. It was very stupid from me. Yeah, but as you say, with hindsight, we're wise, aren't we? So how did you manage then to um, maintain relationships, to, to work, to, to you know, do the things that we need to do to get by, suffering from an, Ill, an undiagnosed and untreated illness? I think, well, I don't think I was that unusual. I think there's a lot of people that get by and go, this is just the way it is, um, and, and who really don't particularly think of themselves necessarily as I have a mental illness, but who go, um like looking back, I now realise that uh, I'm diagnosed bipolar one, and there were times in my lives when I was obviously having manic episodes. But to me at the time, not knowing anything about mental health and certainly nothing about bipolar, I was just simply going, "Oh, when I had a manic episode, I went, this is happiness. Mm. Everybody gets happiness, and this is I don't get it very often, but it's great." You was riding and, the rest of the wave. Yeah, and and for me. I think um, work actually became a bit of an asylum for me. Um, work was where I knew what was expected of me. I knew what I had to do. You, you hear about it now. I, I re- it resonates for me when I hear sports people talk about it. They go, when I'm doing training, when I'm on the field, I know what I have to do. I have no problems with mental issues. It's when I go home and when I'm free and when, when my mind is free to myself that I have the issues. I always felt like that with work. I could get up and step by step, even through the worst depressions, just go through it, do what I had to do, and it was fine. I actually didn't, I didn't look forward to it that much. I wasn't you know, getting up on a Monday morning and, whoa, I'm going to work. I did find it, the consistency of it helped me. And I think I would have had a lot tougher time if I hadn't been working. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think people around you, aside from your family, so the people around you at work, could see changes in you or did you wear a mask every day? Wore a mask. Brilliant actor, like all of us. I went, whoa, I would have gone 25 years before I consulted another psychiatrist and I only really started talking about this a few years ago um, to colleagues um, 
and not one of every one of in fact a boss that i'd worked with very closely for about eight years he said to me he said but you you were my right hand man you were the guy i went to with all the difficulties and all the problems i would give them to you and nobody and i would, and it wasn't through people weren't turning a blind eye people just didn't suspect no idea whatsoever that they just um and i worked with some lovely people who if they had suspected, they would have asked, asked about it and they would have tried to have helped me. But no, I was a brilliant actor. My, it, it, I don't joke about it, but the, the people that suffered from this were my family because I could wear a mask all day, I could be happy and professional and talk to clients and then I'd just go home and slump. When you were in the workplace, and there, and I'm sure there were many days that were very difficult to get through despite wearing the mask and going through the motions, were you concerned that if you ever said anything to anyone that you would lose your job um, and that you would be kind of ostracised? Um, no, but mine, I did keep when I was more and more aware of things, I kept my mouth shut, not because of fear of being relegated to the sidelines or to being eventually driven out, but, and this might sound a bit funny, but from having my career killed by kindness, because the people I worked with were really people that I still see, people that I still have a lunch with or a drink with, and really nice people. And I feared in a way, I think, and maybe this wasn't all that conscious, but that if I said anything, perhaps these people would go, oh, we better take care of David a little bit. We better, and I was in a very senior role, so I was fearful that they might go, let's not put him on this next big project or whatever. But if you do that for long enough and you're earning enough money, finally the finance guys are going to come around and go, how come this guy's earning so much money and he doesn't seem to do a great deal? So that, that was sort of my fear. I just felt like I had to be right in the midst of it all and just keep going. Yeah, that makes it does make sense. So it's that you know, pity's got no place really in, um, you know, anything to do with mental health, in my opinion. Pity mm. carries very far. We can't base good relationships, whether it's a workplace relationship or a personal relationship, if it's based off of pity. No, I, I, I quite agree. And... Um, but these, these, they still do, they still go, I can't believe it. Um, but they were people who would never, I just, I know them well enough to know they were never going to sit down behind my back and start plotting my demise. But they were possibly the people going, how do we take care of him? What do we do? And, and perhaps Molly coddled me into a position where I go, oh dear, my career is, you know, very tenuous now. And, and my, my career, like everybody's, everything balanced on it. Your family, your home, your holidays, everything balanced on that. So you went, well, I'm just not going to risk this. Um, yeah, which was stupid because I, I, but I think you're in the forest so you can't see the trees. Looking back, I should have just sought help a bit outside of my workplace. But I didn't. I just kept storm about it and just kept rolling. So what was it, David, that led you to the to go in to see a psychiatrist 25 years after the first one? 
Um, I can remember it really, really clearly. We'd, um, we'd taken, I have two daughters who are now adult daughters, fantastic kids. And um, we'd done the classic, uh, let's go to Disneyland holiday. And so we'd gone over to the US, we'd taken the kids to um, uh, San Francisco and LA and then down to um, Disneyland and back through Hawaii. And I just, through that time, experienced the worst depression because I wasn't sleeping because of time changes. Um, and when I got back and I, I went back to work, um, it was as if my batteries just ran flat. I was walking home from work one evening uh, to go to the rail station and I saw a, a high rise with the big lobbies and the lounges and I thought, I'm just going to sit down for five minutes because I'm really tired. And I reckon I sat there for about half an hour, I just couldn't get up. Mm. And then I finally went, this, this is ridiculous. I'm, it's like mental illness is not all in your head. It was a physical component of it. And I went, I have to see somebody. And I went to, um, thankfully, very good uh, family GP. And they said, this is beyond me. You need to see a good psychiatrist. And I went and it was the best thing I ever did. What was different from that? the first one to this one? Well, I reckon if you, if, if you thought of a stereotypical um, psychiatrist and you'd never met one, the first guy was like that. Mm -hmm. Sigmund Freud without a beard sort of thing. And the guy I see now, and I have been seeing for probably oh, at least 10 years, possibly 12, if you sat beside him at a dinner party, you'd never pick it. Most ordinary person hugely intelligent, but, but he doesn't show it. Really warm person, um, fun to talk with. Um, just uh, for the first moment I met him, and because when you go into these places, you don't feel at ease whatsoever. And I went in and I just went, I walked out of that meeting going, I really like this guy. And, and you know, I'm prepared to sit with him and listen to what he has to say. And, and he was the exact opposite. He wasn't patronising. He was interested in me and, you know, and, and I, I would say actually it's like we've developed quite a good friendship now. We don't, not outside the professional relationship, but um, he was just a very warm person. And I've read this. They say that psychologists, psychiatrists, you get as much out of somebody if you like that person. Um, as you do from what they have to say clinically. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that's very much the case for me. Yeah, it's all about the relationship. Absolutely. Um, so you trusted him, um, no doubt. And did he give you hope that you could feel better and get better? Uh, yeah, I think from where you go. Um, yeah, he, he said, look, I think... Um, because initially I'd gone to him not saying I think I'm bipolar or I have manic episodes because I'd never really actually even thought of that. I'd gone to him and said I have very black moods. And he went, okay. And he said, he's, and I, what I liked about him was he wasn't one of these people that went straight for the medications. He said, let's try a bit of cognitive behaviour therapy. Let's, let's have a look at the way you think about things because I am prone to being a very negative thinker. And uh, 
And he said, let's try that for a while. And so we tried it. And I gave him a shot. Then I went back and said, yeah, I, I, I can see the theory to it. I'm applying it. And I still feel really, really lousy. And after about six months, then he went, more. Right, well, maybe we'll try some medications. But he did, to, to answer your question, he, from where we go, I felt really good. Um, and then eventually when I got a full diagnosis, when, when he realised that I wasn't just depressive, but I was bipolar, I felt like the world had been lifted off my shoulders. You did, did you? Yeah, absolutely. Because it was an explanation for everything. Well, yeah, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't some sort of hypochondriac. You know, I wasn't somebody who was just so in their heads that that's all they can think about. I, I, I had a reason, like suddenly pretty much all my life, or not, you know, a, a large aspect of my life was explained to me. And I went, ah. Oh. And I think too, with a diagnosis, you go, now we can get somewhere. Now we can look at how to treat that because we know what we're dealing with. Yeah, I get that. Um, so when you tried the medication, medication, um, you know, getting the, 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 the medication right, the doses right, et cetera, can be really tricky. What was your experience of that like? Oh, <laughs> well, initially um, I was on an antidepressive, which actually did such a good job that it set me on to about a three-month manic high, and that's when, that's when he said, oh, you're not, you're not depressive, you're bipolar. Um, but look, in a nutshell, I've, I operate on medication and I operate very well. I, I lead what I consider a very normal life thanks to being medicated. And I'm not, that's not something I'm saying everybody should be, you know, grab the medication. But getting to this level has been some really interesting details and tangents and medications that have just made me sleep all day. I've had medications. I was on lithium. I, I had to get off it because it's actually poisoning my system. Um, I've had medications played with my, um, my, um, sweat for a bit, my balance. I've had some, some really, I've had dry mouth, you name it. I've had others that have put weight on. But, and I, I talk to young people now about these things and go, the thing I did every time was go back to him and go, this is not working. I've put five kilos on or I can't stay awake at work or I can't do this. And we would just, through trial and error, try drugs and then suddenly go, oh, this seems to be working. And I, I must say now, on a, a regime that seems to have been working for quite a few years now, it's very good. And you worked together. It was a collaborative approach. Absolutely, absolutely. And he would um, volunteer the information as to what and the possible side effects and we'd watch out for them. And even now, if because your mood still varies slightly, but medication is just fine-tuned to in accordance with that. But he will go, and I'll just simply say, I'm not going back on that because that caused me to do this or that caused me to do that. I, many of the side effects of my drugs, my children had wonderful, savage humour and enjoyed their father making an absolute fool of himself. Like I, 
I've been on holidays with them. I couldn't even get down the stairs into a spa. My, my, and here I was, like, being led down my, by my daughters down the stairs so I wouldn't fall over and, like, be going, what? It must be a stroke victim or something like that. But it was purely the drugs. Yeah. But they, they thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. And I, I, I think the thing is, too, I took it all with a grain of salt. I didn't, too many people that I, I talked to go, that didn't work. A bit like me with the first psychiatrist. That didn't work. Medication's no good. And you go, whoa, 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 you wouldn't do that if you had the flu. Because one pill didn't work, you wouldn't say, well, therefore, no medication. They, you go back to the doctor and go, this doesn't work, I'm still sick and it's three weeks I've had it. And they go, oh, we'll give you a different antibiotic. It's the same with mental illness, I think. I agree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you're, I know you have a, a, a great sense of humour. I've stalked you. as I, <laughs> I love being stalked. <laughs> yeah, the guests that we come on, I enjoy doing a bit of stalking. <laughs> pre-podcast and I so I know that your sense of humor um is is fabulous how has that carried you through difficult times have you managed to maintain your sense of humor oh not not all the time I'm certainly no I I like um to present as somebody that does um but I've like anybody I like I can certainly empathise with people who have very black moods and you don't have the same sense of humour. But I do find it is a wonderful help. Um, it's particularly, I think also it's a very, um, I'm 62 and I think there's a lot of guys my age. For me, with my close mates, it's, it's a very Aussie way of dealing with things. You don't talk intently about things. You just, you know, you, you, you muck around. And, but I also think there's a real thing for me, So I talk a lot about mental health and uh, in corporate environments and that sort of thing, it makes it approachable and it makes it a lot less daunting. Um, I can fully understand it when people come out publicly and they write about their moods and things like that, but sometimes it can be my mind it can be damaging because you have to make it a world that other people you have to sort of normalize it for them so that other people can come in and go oh he doesn't seem too confronting that's like i'm i'm interested and i've i guess it's not something i've developed the the humor to go that is a, it's probably just a natural part of me but i find it really helpful in being able to talk about mental illness especially to those who may not suffer from it. Yeah, it, it, makes, it makes you accessible and it takes the edge off. It, it does. Well, I, but I do, I do have other friends who we can talk wickedly with the blackest humour who, who also suffer. Mm-hmm. And it's actually very therapeutic. We can just oh, say terrible things that, that those people who would like the more politically correct acceptance of things would just, you know, go, oh, my God. But it just, you know, you're fellow travellers and, and it allows you to have a good laugh about things at times and it helps you to drag one another out of holes at times. When you received your diagnosis, when, 
Was it then that you decided to talk to your colleagues at work and say, look, this is going on for me? Or did you deliberate for a while? How did that work out? Yeah, I deliberated um, because I've been virtually self-employed for about 15 years. And and I thought, wow, I've, you know, you, you've got to sell yourself to people. And I actually, I, my psychiatrist had a very interesting thing. He said... Um, I said, do I confide in people? He said, hmm. And he looked at me like he was looking at the five-year-old. He went, consider this. He said, imagine if you had an identical twin and you're identical in every circumstance except for the fact that you have a mental illness and you both apply for the same job. Uh, who gets the job? And I said, yeah, but yeah, I don't have an identical twin and I have different talents. Other people. He said, I know, I know. He said, but things... If things get down to all things being equal, people go, well, we like both these people. The person's come out and said, oh, by the way, I'm bipolar one. We'll, we'll be the one that probably doesn't get the job. So I, I didn't. And it's only been in the last few years that I've started really confiding and being very open about it. And people, people even now say, oh, you're very brave. But I'm not really because I'm doing this at a tail end of my career. And, and being brave would have, if I'd known, would have been doing it 30 years ago. But it's also, but it does have, I'm not for a minute saying for people not to confide, um, but they just have to be careful. They have to know their ground. Um, because I think uh, I've had some wonderful things over the last few years where I've confided in people and I've just had from management just, fantastic experiences with really good people who have gone, tell me more and how can I help? And and the fact that you can finally ring somebody up and go, I'm not travelling all that well today and you don't have to ring up and say, I think I've got the flu or I've got about a gastric, I can't come in, is a huge relief. But I do, I, I appreciate it. It's a very, you really have to, to know your ground, I think, if you're younger and you're thinking, do I confide or not? Some people obviously have to. You know, certain mental illnesses where you just simply can't get away with putting on a brave face. But for others, I think you just have to really think it through and, and you know, have, have a good sense of safety and security in those people that you have a really good sense of trust. Have you come across in your work around uh, mental health awareness people that have shared stories with you about how they've been treated in workplaces that hasn't been good? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I've had a number. Um, not, I must say, not people that I've known that I've worked with because my generation seems to be the ones that never said the word. But I, I know, I spoke to a, a, um, a large corporation last year during Mental Health Month, and uh, one of the uh, people came up, would have been a young woman, mid to late 20s, I reckon, and um, she said, that was really interesting. She said, I loved hearing you. Um, she said, I'm bipolar one too. And so we sat and talked for about 20 minutes. She said, she said, you know, it's really ironic. She said, I've told my boss I've confided because there's times when I have to be off or whatever. And 
She said, he just doesn't get it. And she said, I don't know whether it's a choice of not bothering to get it, you know, just going, well, it's too hard, isn't it? But then she said, um, the email went out about you talking today and he was one of the first ones who went, oh, wow, that'll be fascinating. I'm going to see that. And she said, I just sat there and went, what? Yeah. You've, got a, you've got a live one sitting here. It could be yeah. fascinating. And instead, you're fascinated in going to this talk. But, you know, she said, I just didn't get it. It was like, oh, wow, that'll be an interesting show. But, um, and things like that. And others, others where you do hear people just being railroaded and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Yeah, it is, and every situation's different. Um, in your, what do you focus on when you give your talks, when you go in and, and speak to people um, in organisations about your experience? Where do you take your focus? Well, I, I speak for the Black Dog Institute as a corporate speaker, um, and they're very clever in the fact they give you um, a certain amount of information and they say, we want these points. And this is, uh, let me say too, I spoke as a community presenter for, for many, many years and that's a strict set presentation you give with sides from your own uh, background. But as corporate speaker, they go, here are the points we want covered and how you deliver them is pretty much up to you. But we need to make sure that these points and these certain slides are displayed. And so you go, you work out your own speech that suits you, and then you go to them and go, well, this is basically what I'm doing. And they go, yeah, yeah, it's fine. But what I do when I go and talk to a large corporate group is because you'll know some of them will be there out of interest, some of them will be there out of their own sufferings, or some will be there because they know somebody who knows somebody. And some other people might be there just because they have to tick a box or whatever for HR. But I start with a bit about myself, a bit about my background, um, uh, career-wise, because when you're talking about corporate, you know, that's basically what you're interested in. But I always try and make it like it's a level thing that I've had rough times, but I've also been very fortunate. And I have been. I've been exceptionally fortunate um, for somebody that, with what I've got to have such a normal life. Um, but then I talk a tiny little bit about the Institute itself. And then we go through basically talking about stress, anxiety and depression, because they're probably the three biggest for workplace mental illness. And then talk about uh, building resilience and some exercises for relaxation and that sort of thing that people can use within a workplace without having to take three hours off uh, and build a bit of resilience and then open it to the floor for questions. What kind of questions do you tend to get? Well, there'll be those, there'll be, there'll be public questions which will all come off the floor and then invariably after a good talk, there'll be two or three people who will wait to talk to you privately. And they'll always be the ones who I find not that they're suffering, but they have a close friend or a child or somebody like that. And that often they're the ones that they just want to sort of confirm. And I, I'm not, I have um, no degree in this. This is all empathy. 
but they like to confirm that, you know, you go, yeah, 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 I understand and, and what they're doing and how they're going about things and if there's any advice, you can often, you know, approaching GPs or whatever about help. Um, but the, the others are, would normally, often they can be about, even though we cover this in the presentation, but I have a very close friend, you know, how can I help them? How can I approach them? Um, uh, uh, but I don't, well, everybody has a good friend. When they're talking publicly about it, it's always about a good friend. Um, but that'll be it. And then you'll get the very intimate ones with the people who will wait for the, it'll be half an hour after the, the show's finished and everybody's wandered off and they'll come up and talk to the person. Yeah. yeah. Do you enjoy doing it? I kind of get in the sense that you do really enjoy doing that. I love it. I um, Don't get me wrong, I get, in fact, I'm going down to camera tomorrow and when we finish this I'll be doing some rehearsals and things because... And like anybody, I get nervous and anxious about doing it. But once you're up and rolling, it's great. And, and for me, and I think this is true of a lot of people that do it, um, it's very therapeutic. You know, you get up, you talk. Um, it's great because people see you and go, oh, wow. You, <laughs> I, this is sad, but I'll tell you, this, the little girl I was talking about that had the bipolar, she said to me when we were chatting, she said, don't take this the wrong way. She said, but one of the best things I got from your speech was to see how old you were. And I think what she meant was that you have what I have and you're still alive and you haven't done anything silly or tragic and you're still battling along and you seem pretty normal and life's okay. And she didn't have to say that, but, and she said, don't get it wrong, but, and I said, yeah, I think I know what you mean. Like, you know, she said, you, you know, you're, you're an old guy, you're still there. Um, which has completely taken me away from your question, I'm sorry. No, no, it hasn't. That's a really profound statement that she made. It was, it was, I, yeah, I mean, you don't do it, but I felt like giving a big hug and going, you'll be right, you know, but, but I, it did open up that area to go, look, look, the, the older you get, the more you learn and the more experience you have, the easier these things are to handle. Uh, you get to know your illness intimately. It's exactly, exactly. You can sense things. You know, it's almost before they happen, you can see. I, I can sense if, if perhaps I might be going, oh, I think I might be getting manic or... Well, my wife can go, you talk, I talk quickly anyhow, but going, you're talking really quickly and I'll get myself off to the doctor and we can curtail anything. Whereas 10 years ago, you would go, woo, off I go. And go, no idea what's happening. Yeah. What's one of the first things you tend to notice when your mood is dropping? What, what, what are the early warning signs for you? Yeah, poor sleep. Um, inability to con concentrate well. Mm -hmm. uh, fogginess. Fogginess, yep. for sure. London fog, yeah, rolls in and you... you the pea super. Ah, uh, absolutely. And the other big thing for me is that um, I suddenly feel like 
I've gone into slow motion. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and, and also the can't sleep when you should, mm. want to sleep all day sort of thing. So they're, they're really just key points for me. They're like, yeah, oh, wow, I'm, I'm dropping. Yeah, yeah. And then the other end, when you feel as if you might be moving into mania, your wife might notice your speech gets a little bit more rapid. What other things do you know? Well, uh, less need for sleep. Um, but I don't, know if the, I don't know if I can, but it feels to me like I can almost hear the chemistry of my brain changing. Yeah. And I can certainly go, it, it, it's funny because I'll suddenly feel good for a day. And by that I mean just a very pleasant, like anybody having a really nice day. And then I'll realise maybe I'm feeling a little too good. And I'll notice I will, my perception, um, my, uh, it's a thing I notice with clouds. If it's a sunny day and it's a cloud, I'll go, oh, that cloud is so beautiful. And it seems brighter and fluffier than it would normally do. And I think that's true with a lot of, Mania is that your perceptions are heightened, and then I'm going, oh darn! Like this good mood I've had today is a forerunner of something. It's not something that I've just happened to have a good day. It'll be, and that's normally when my wife would going, yeah, I think it's a good mood, but I think it's taking you somewhere else. Yeah, it's not fair, is it? If only you could bottle that. <laughs> if you could bottle it, we'd all be millionaires. Fabulous. Oh, one day of absolute. Not craziness, just no, yeah, just, just feeling good and elevation. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the squirrels should be dancing beside you, and the flowers are sort brilliant, of all singing along. <laughs> <laughs> you really have. Oh, it, it sounds as if you are managing the symptoms of your illness in in a textbook way. You know, this is what we want everybody that experiences the symptoms of bipolar disorder or whatever mental illness it might be to be to get to a position where you you are in control of it rather than it being in control of you uh, look absolutely and I, I i i certainly can't take all the credit for for hanging these well as a wonderful family and wife's absolute angel of these things and I've got great professionals around me. And I, I realise that's not possible for everybody. But I reckon, for, especially for younger people, the quicker you can learn about your illness, rather than just accepting it, but the quicker you can learn about it, and, and, and I mean bury yourself in it, like and not necessarily when you're ill, but if you get, well, I'll just learn about that in case it's a recurring thing. Um, it's so much easier to be able to see it the second time around or whatever and also not feel so despondent about it. It's like if we get the flu, we go, oh, I feel terrible. You know, I'm, I've got a few days of feeling aches and pains. I get really, really bad, but I know I'll get out of this. So I, I know I'm going to get better. Yeah, it's the same. It's easier said than done and it takes experience. but. If you can do that with a mental illness, you're really well advanced. If you, it only dawned on me the other day. You go, mental illness. 
oh well, illness, it's an illness. You know, yeah. it's, in that way, it's no different to a physical illness in the fact you go, be aware of the symptoms and get ready to deal with them and, and, and accept them when they are there and go, well, I can't fight with other things, but I can know how to manage them. Yeah, I love that. Um, tell me about Club 20. Oh, okay, sure. Um, it, I'm, I'm a writer by trade. Been in advertising all my life. And I like I said at the very start, I love to write. I'd like to write, I write for my living and when I'm not, I'm writing for leisure. I write a heck of a lot on LinkedIn and all that sort of thing. Um, Club 20 is basically just articles, but I have a real belief that, and I don't want this to sound wrong in any way because I love, for example, Black Dog Institute. I, I, Beyond Blue, fantastic. But I've got a feeling at the moment we approach mental illnesses in corporate Australia with a sense of let's get the mental health institutes in, let's get all the guys in the white coats and the psychiatrists and stuff, let's get all the management together. And then at the end of that, we're going to get somebody with lived experience to come in and give a 40-minute talk, but we've got all the programs laid out. And I did Club 20 off the belief that you're going, we've got this huge wealth of people that that have suffered, have lived experience. Um, And that lived experience is just as valuable to somebody who is suffering, especially in silence, because the vast majority of people in, in workforces do not put their hands up for help. But having a fellow traveller be able to talk to you, and that's all I do through the writing, is incredibly valuable because you're going, I'm not a freak. Um, there are other people just like me, lots of other people just like me going through these things. And it's, to my mind, I, I um, associate it like, um, like it must have been for gay people in the 70s and 80s who were going to go, damn it, I'm coming out. It must have been a lot easier if you talked to a certain other person and said, I'll get to what I'm gay to. You know, like rather than being told by your minister or somebody else what to expect because you go, well, these are people that might have academic understanding. But I'm not for I get it. You don't, yeah. you don't need to explain that. I, you are doing a good job yeah. of what you're saying. Yeah. I, reckon, I reckon we got we got... Two out of three parts in the puzzle at the moment, and and they're wonderful parts. Those two parts, but boy, I uh, I won't say where, but I was in uh, talking to some people the other day, and I'll give you two examples. I went in, I went in with this thought, and I went in to see a major corporation, and they went, yeah, 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 it looks really good. We're very impressed with it, but. We only put material up that's uh, written by psychiatrists or psychologists. And I didn't fight with it because I knew I was in a losing battle there. And I, and I understand it too because they're going, oh, there's a risk factor in all of this. And you're going, well, you know, actually there's probably less risk factor. But nevertheless, but then the other day I was talking to a corporation and not about, not about Club 20 at all, it was something totally different. And they went, they said the best reactions of material we're putting up on our intranet are from lived experience people within the corporation 
who are bravely putting up pieces again. Here's what I've been through, blah, blah, blah. And they said, these are just getting so many hits. And that's, that's all to me what Club 20 is. It's, it's, it's well-written, empathetic insights of 35 years of mental illness, what to expect. But not, it's certainly, it's not something about, let me tell you about the worst case, it's about let's explore how you can find help outside of the corporation if you re- wish to remain anonymous, um, how to deal with it, you know, that, just those things. To my mind, it's like having a fellow traveller sitting on your desk beside you going, well, why don't you try this? Yeah. And that's, that's basically what it is in a, in a very simple, you know, 10-minute read every second week sort of thing. That's, that's basically what Club 20 is. And it's called Club 20 because a mental illness can be very isolating and uh, alienating, so therefore it's a club like Welcome to the Club. Mm-hmm. There's lots of them. And 20% because... 20% of us Australian adults will suffer from some form of mental illness in any given year. Uh, and quite honestly, I don't, I wouldn't give, if I get the thing rolling, the Club 20 is incidental, the naming of it. It's just, it's mainly just people using this sort of material to go, oh, this is really helpful for people. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going, oh, this will be, you know, Ten years from now, Club Twenty will be a huge brand name in mental health. I think the day everything disappears. But if the material and that sort of material can be used, then it'll be worthwhile. And you're extending it beyond the the blogs and the articles, aren't you? We were actually with a, a very good friend of mine, who by coincidence was bipolar, said to me. He said. So I really like what you're doing, but he said this is um, he said this could be far bigger, and uh, we went for a, a grant. It was grants up to three hundred grand through Google for new ways of using news because um, journalists and everybody being kicked to death by the internet, and so Google said, "All right, we're giving up three hundred grand for new ways and new ways of generating revenue for news." And he just said to me, he said, Club 20, he said, if it's not all written by you, he said, Club 20 is a news site. He said, it's a, he, he, he said, it's a mental health news site. And he had a great idea of going, it's going to be a subscription model, but 20% of the revenue is coming out to go back um, to mental health institutions, such as the Black Dog, for, um, for research. And I went, what a brilliant idea. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, like, so part of what you're giving will be tax deductible anyhow. But he said, he said it's too big. He said it's great. He said we do video. He said do what you're doing, for example, in reverse, you know. And um, he said it could be something that, you know, people just go, that's a news site about mental health. And he said, what, what a great idea. And long story short, we put together the fantastic stuff. We got down to the last round and we got beaten out by The Guardian and Crikey. So we thought, wow, we, we were really, we weren't pleased about not getting the money, yeah. but we were very pleased to go, we were in very good company up to the very last round that they thought, oh, there's something in this. This is a, a very interesting initiative. So to my mind, and once again, regardless of 
the thinking of it, to my mind, and something driven from a, um, a lived experience thing tied in corporate Australia, it can be really powerful, like hugely powerful. And I'm not, not just on Club 20. I met, as we started this little piece of conversation, anything where corporations go, let's look at new ways of using lived experience within a workforce because I don't know about you, but I, since I have come out, I find so many people in workplaces going, would you mind if we had a coffee? Or, and it'll be to talk about their own personal experience. And, and they don't go necessarily to their management. They don't necessarily ring up an EAP because a lot of them don't even know about an EAP or what it is. But they go, this guy talks about it openly. And don't worry, I perform. I reckon I take less sick leaves than an ordinary person. But they'll go, fellow traveller. And they'll chat to you, and they know that it's open, and they know it'll be, you know, confidential. And they'll not. I hate to say advice because I'm not giving advice. No, no, but you are giving support. Yeah, support, and going. Oh, have you considered this? Or why don't you do that and stuff? And that's where I don't. I don't know exactly how it works, but one day. That's going to be the third cog in the wheel. And then I think a lot of those people who suffer needlessly in silence will go, I'll put my hand up. Okay, I get it. I'll put my hand up. You know, I'm not alone. I'm not a freak. I'm not a hypochondriac. Where's the call? Yeah. Fabulous. Right. couple more things before we wrap up. So first, the first thing I'd like to ask you is if somebody who's listening to this that is struggling with their own mental health, um, dragging themselves through their work day. And I ask, I always ask this question because it's always about viewpoint, about perspective, you know, and it's easy for us to say to other people, just reach out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your message for those people? Oh, okay. Um, well, Firstly, I'd say somebody, find somebody, not necessarily in your workplace, but find somebody that you can confide in, somebody that you trust explicitly um, or implicitly, or whatever. I always get those two mixed up. But and and if you want to remain, don't pick one building workforce, but find a friend or a relative or you know to talk to openly about who's not going to go, oh my god, like you know, and will give you the time, but also go and see a GP and go and see, and, and not just, and, and I realise it's hard, especially for younger people now, now that when I grew up, you had the family doctor. You all went to see the same doctor all the time and they knew you and they knew your history. It's not as easy now. I know my daughters go flying off to medical centres and they go, oh, yeah, I saw a good, and they go, oh, I'm busy, so I'll go another medical centre. But I would say... If you think you have something, you know, and you're not feeling and travelling all that well, find a doctor who actually understands a little bit about mental health. And that's by ringing that surgery and, and asking the people on the desk, going, do you have somebody that actually is, you know, a bit more knowledgeable than others? Because not all doctors created equal and not all doctors have the same interests. Um, and... No doctor, or if you do have a local doctor, ring them and say, do you know much about it? And 
a good doctor will go, yes, I do, or no, but I know somebody that does. And when you do book it, book a long session because you don't want to do it in 15 minutes. You want to go along, you want to write down your symptoms and go, go and see a doctor. Have half an hour chat and go, this is where I'm at. What can you, how can you help me? Excellent. Brilliant. I knew you'd nail that. (laughs) 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 Because that's everything, that's everything I never did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, but that's, that's the best thing about being older and wiser. <laughs> we can do that. Um, so my last question is, how do you keep yourself well? What do you do for self-care? Um, eat well. I'm very fortunate. I'm, my wife's a great cook, but we eat, we eat very well. Um, I'm medicated. I'm very good and disciplined with my medication. I don't go, I'll skip for three days and see how I travel. Um, I, I'm certainly no gym junkie, but I do get exercise. I walk as much as I possibly can and I set myself an aim of 10,000 steps a day, which I often get nowhere near, but I, I, you know, I'll take the stairs rather than the escalator. Um, eat well. Um, I, I practice a lot of different things, but I like, I'm a bit like anybody. I'll do something and then drop out of it. But I'll do, like, I've done meditation. When I say meditation, I'm talking about just really good um, disciplined breathing, um, mindfulness stuff. And, and one, one I love, and I read about it the other day, and you just people don't do it enough, but gratitude. Before we get to bed, write down the old five things that you've got to be grateful for and that you actually go, you, and I find that. That simple little exercise can change your mindset from a, 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 a poor me, and I don't, I'm going to go, but to going, oh, wow, my life's pretty good. You know, it amazes me. And I'm, well, I, I'm saying that from, like, me thinking, oh, poor me, you know, and I'm not feeling good, and I'm, to go bang and going, whoa, how lucky am I? You know, how, how good is this? i got a bit of a pain in the ass of a, you know, mental Ill- illness at the moment. But basically my life's like, you know, nine out of ten sort of stuff. Love it. I love the practice of gratitude. And, you know, I am grateful every time I get to do one of these podcasts. I meet, get to talk to so many interesting people. With, with the, and we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to push that message out there so that, that nobody gets left behind. Absolutely. Abs- that's, that's it. The, the big thing, normalise it, you know, so that people go, yeah, you know, not not just for everybody, not not whether you're suffering from something or you have an illness or, or you've never had a mental illness in your life, for everybody, just to go, oh, yeah, I, I can talk, not that you have to be as knowledgeable, but I can talk about that as easy as I can talk about the flu. Yeah. You know, I've picked off. At the moment, he's got a bit of a problem with, you know, he's a bit down at the moment and he's got a couple of those off. Yeah, we're on a mission. So if anybody wants to have a look at your work, David, what's the best um, medium for them to do that? Is it through your website and what's your website? Oh, look, they get, well, it's just simple, club20, that's the numbers, uh, .com.au. 
don'tgo.com because then it takes you off to Oklahoma or something and there's a club over there called Club 20, which I've got no idea what it is. It's not an adult club, is it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's anything but. I think it's where old ladies go crochet and men play oh. checkers. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Club 20. Or just jump on to LinkedIn. Connect with me. I, I, I love connecting with people and a lot of people connect with me and... And if you do connect, I'm not one of these people like, I'll talk to you. You know, like you join up with a lot of people and I don't know why they bother to be on LinkedIn because they don't, they don't link up at all. Um, but, yeah, I, I put up a lot of work on LinkedIn or Club 20 and, and um, I think all my contact details are on LinkedIn. Um, and, yeah, but reach out. I, I love talking to people and especially like, you know, I try and talk to a lot of people up in corporate land, but I never, I got a lot of people that I've met, like really people that you consider close for, people that you could meet, you know, on social media, but that we interact really well with and people that, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice. It, it feels like we're actually going somewhere. Yeah. Okay. And I would recommend... Um connecting with David on LinkedIn because that's how we became, you know, to, to have this conversation and, and do this podcast. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on our, our podcast. And yes, if, if there's anything that we can do to support the work that you do, you know where we are now. Fantastic, Taylor. Thanks so much. It's been, it's been a wonderful experience. My first podcast. Oh, you did awesome. I just assumed you'd done this before. No, 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 But I, I was just very proud of actually getting all the uh, technology together. Oh, you did great. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you, Tina. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.